part of what we find as we read through this book of Hebrews that we're studying is that it is full of some great short one-liner verses. And, and one of them is found in Hebrews 13, 8, where the author tells us Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever, forever. And that's part of what we're saying as we sing that song, same God together. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to be in chapters 3 and 4 today as we continue this series called Jesus is Better. Uh, The the year was 1971, and, and the location was a football field in northern Virginia. The the game seemed to be getting out of hand. Everything was going in the other team's favor, and and the team was tempted, the players were tempted to kind of give up and throw in the towel. And so one of the coaches called timeout, and he said, defense on me. I don't want them to gain another yard. You blitz all night. And if they cross the line of scrimmage again, I'm going to take every last one of you out. You make sure they remember forever the night they played the Titans. It's a speech from an iconic scene in the movie Remember the Titans, but but maybe a sports movie isn't your thing, and maybe you're more of a war movie type of person, and so you can picture someone with blue paint riding on a horse back and forth before his countrymen as he says, I am William Wallace. And I see a whole army of my countrymen in defiance of tyranny. You have come to fight as free men, and free men you are. What will you do with your freedom? Will you fight? And someone in the crowd says, no, we will run and we will live. He says, aye, fight and you may die. Run and you'll live, at least a while. And dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that one for one chance just one chance to come back here and kill our enemies. They may take our lives, but they will never take our freedom. Now, both of those speeches sound a whole lot better in the context of the movie that they're in. Uh, And one of them, I'll let you decide which one, sounds a whole lot better with a Scottish accent. But what do those speeches and so many others in the movies we might watch have in common? They're given to a group of people who are tempted to lose heart, give up, and walk away from something. And someone comes to them in that moment and says, don't give up, keep going, this is worth it. The the author of Hebrews is preaching to a group of people who are tempted to lose heart, give up, and walk away from their faith and walk away from Christ. They face the unique temptation to turn back to Judaism and the old covenant and walk away from Jesus. And there likely would have been an entire group of people who were waiting to celebrate and affirm them if they simply walked away from Jesus back to Judaism. And so the preacher of Hebrews tells them, don't give up, keep going. Jesus is worth it. I I would guess many of us in here, maybe even all of us in here, don't face the temptation to turn from Jesus to Judaism like the 
original audience that heard this message. But we're still tempted in all sorts of ways to turn from faith in Jesus and walk away from following him. Whether because of suffering that calls into question his goodness. Is this God really who he says he is? Why is this happening then? Or doubts that cause us to call into question his promises. If everything he says in this word is so true, why don't I always seem to see it? Or or maybe just sin that seems more appealing than obedience to him. In the midst of all these things, we're tempted to walk away from Jesus rather than continuing to run back to him with all our pain, all our doubts, all our struggles, and all our sin. And in our own day, when deconstruction and deconversion is met with a hero's welcome, we can be sure that if we would walk away from Jesus, there will surely be a crowd of people who would be waiting to celebrate and affirm us. Hebrews is a book that shows us perseverance in the faith is necessary for salvation. Not because, or this does not mean that a person who is genuinely saved by God can somehow end up losing their salvation. We have to live in fear of that. But, but rather, it simply means the one who is genuinely saved by God will ultimately persevere to the end in faith. And so we all need to take the call to persevere in faith seriously. We all, all, every single one of us need to take the call to persevere in our faith seriously. We need to know there are all sorts of things that might tempt us to lose heart, give up, and simply walk away. So we need to hear God's word through Hebrews as he tells us as well, don't give up, keep going. Jesus really is worth it. We can see three ways the the preacher says this in Hebrews 3 through 4 as he tells us, don't turn away, don't fall away, and don't forfeit your rest. And so we're going to read together, not all of uh, chapters 3 and 4, but we'll read some in chapter 3 and then some in chapter 4. Let's pray together before we read God's word. Father, we are dependent on you for everything we have not just to give it to us initially, but ultimately to sustain us. And so we are dependent on your sustaining grace to help us persevere in faith in Christ in the midst of all sorts of things that might tempt us to lose heart and give up. And God, I pray that this morning, this time together, might be one more means of your sustaining grace to keep us going, to keep us going to keep us believing that Jesus really is better and he really is worth it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll start in chapter 3 and read verses 1 through 15 and then jump to chapter 4 and read a couple of verses there. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. 
and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. We'll jump down to chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listen. We'll jump down to verse 8 and read up through verse 13 in chapter 4. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We can break this, these two chapters up sort of in this way to see how chapter 3, verse 1 through 6 tell us don't fall away. And then verses 7 through 19 tell us don't turn, or sorry, verses 1 through 6, don't turn away. Verses 7 through 19, don't fall away. And then chapter 4 telling us don't forfeit your rest. First of all, hearing this warning of don't turn away. Like we said, the unique temptation for the people who heard this original message was to turn away from Jesus back to Judaism and the old covenant. This is why the preacher of Hebrews is over and over and over emphasizing Jesus and the new covenant he brings is better. And one of the ways he does this is by highlighting how All of the Old Covenant, including its best leaders, were simply setting the stage and pointing forward to Jesus and his new covenant. So what we find in Hebrews 3, 1 through 6 is this emphasis that Moses was good, but Jesus is better. Moses was good, but Jesus is better. Maybe you've been to a concert before, and if you've been to a bigger concert, you know there's often an opening act or maybe multiple opening acts that are then followed by the main act or the headlining act. And the the opening act and the main act do similar things, right? They, They both play music and they both sing. And yet usually they're, they're nowhere close to being on the same level. The the main act is much better. That's who you are ultimately there for. So so why is there an opening act then? What what are they doing? 
Well, the opening act is setting the stage, preparing everyone for what's to come, getting people excited for the main act. Hebrews 3, 1 through 6 is essentially saying that while Moses was a good opening act, Jesus is the far better main act that Moses was meant to point to. Moses was sent. That's the meaning of the word apostle in verse 1 in chapter 3. He was sent by God to deliver the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. Jesus was sent by God to deliver all people from sin, Satan, and death who trust in him. Moses represented the people before God, right? He went before them representing them. Jesus opens the way to God, rips the curtain so that we can go into God and be his children and call him our father. Moses was simply a a servant there to serve God. Jesus is the son of God. Moses was only part of the house, part of God's people. Jesus is the builder of the house who builds God's people. Moses led the people to a new land, or really Joshua did because Moses died. Jesus leads his people to a new heavens and new earth. Moses died and was replaced by another leader. Jesus died and was resurrected to lead all his people from death to life. The preacher is saying as good as Moses was, Jesus is far better than Moses because Moses was always simply setting the stage and pointing forward to Jesus. And so to turn away from Jesus and turn back to Judaism and the old covenant would actually be to give up all that Moses and the old covenant was pointing forward to. See, the the preacher is trying to emphasize this point. Turning away from Jesus is loss, not gain. Turning away from Jesus is loss, not gain. Because to turn away from Jesus may feel like we are gaining something in the short term. For the Hebrews, the people who heard this, if they would have walked away from Jesus, they would have gained a type of relief from the suffering and persecution that they were facing. We're told people are at times just like breaking into their houses, stealing stuff, stealing their property. Man, to turn away from Christ, all of a sudden that's gone. And yet the preacher is saying, in reality, to turn from Jesus is to lose all that he's gained for you. To turn away from Jesus is to lose, give up our access to God that Jesus grants to us. To turn away from Jesus is to lose forgiveness of sins and our ultimate victory over sin that Jesus has purchased for us. To turn away from Jesus is to lose the hope of heaven that he has secured for us all so that life gets just a little bit easier on this earth for a little while. And the preacher is saying to every single one of us, don't make that trade. You're getting ripped off. Don't make that trade. You're getting ripped off. In any way that we might be tempted to turn away from Jesus, because it seems like life will be better or easier apart from him in some way, The preacher is saying to us, don't make that trade. You're getting ripped off. Think think of a specific temptation in our own time. How tempting it is for us to give up the notion of sin and the need for repentance and belief in Christ for salvation. If we gave up those two things, life would get easier. 
we'd fit in a whole lot better with our culture because we'd simply be able to say, oh, don't, don't worry about anything. You, you are fine just how you are. Jesus loves you just the way you are, period. Rather than comma, and calls us to faith and repent, or repentance and faith in him. And, and yet if we were to give up those two notions, we would actually be giving up the gospel that says Jesus came to die for sinners and to call those sinners to repentance and faith in him. And we'd also give up all that we are promised through the gospel, which is why the preacher is telling us, keep believing the gospel. Keep believing the gospel. In verse 6, he says these words. You can look back there. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. In other words, we are God's family. We are his people. As long as we continue to put our hope for salvation in Jesus, and all he's done for us. It's important for us to see that perseverance in the faith is exactly that. It's perseverance in faith. And the object of our faith is Jesus and his life, death, resurrection, and ascension on our behalf. We persevere by faith, not by works, because we're saved by faith, not by works. Yes, works give evidence to our faith, and faith will always demonstrate itself through good works. But it's never works that save us. We persevere in faith by continuing to believe the gospel that saved us in the first place. Al Mohler says this, he says, The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints does not mean we enter God's kingdom by faith and stay in God's kingdom by works. Instead, it means we enter God's kingdom by a faith that will persevere and never fail. By faith, we confidently trust that Christ's righteousness belongs to us. He is our only boast. He is our unfailing hope. We might think of it in this way. Maybe you can picture someone who is water skiing. I have a picture up there if that helps you to picture this that they're holding on to a rope that's ultimately attached to a boat that that rope is connected to. How does that person continue water skiing? How do they keep going on their skis? They hold on to the rope, right? Their, Their only job in some sense is hold on to the rope. The same rope that got you up and going on those skis is the same rope that keeps you going on those skis. Now, with that picture in mind, listen again to verse 6. We are his house if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in hope. We persevere in the Christian life by continuing to place our faith in Jesus alone to save us. He is our confidence. He is our hope. He is the one we boast in. And it's really tempting, I think, for us to start to think, Jesus is the one who gets me going in the Christian life. But now to keep going, it must be something other than Jesus that I need. That's like saying the rope is what gets you up in water skiing, but once you're up on the skis, you can let go of the rope because you don't need it anymore. Because our good works and our good deeds can do no more to save us 
than a water skier can stay on his skis without a rope. He will sink. And if we are in any way trying to rely on our own goodness and works, we will ultimately sink. If you're relying on your works and your goodness to save you, you need to repent of that and trust Jesus alone to save you. This is why the the author of the Hebrews, the preacher is telling us, don't turn away from Jesus to something else, including your own works and goodness. Keep believing the gospel. Jesus is worth it because Jesus alone can save you. Next, the preacher is going to warn us against falling away as he reminds us about the generation of people that Moses led out of Egypt in verses 7 through 19. He tells us, don't fall away, don't fall away. We get, we get a quote from Psalm 95 in verse 7 through 11 of chapter 3. And this quote is designed to be a warning to every single one of us. Every one of us. The author's giving this as a warning because he's telling about the generation, the first generation that left in the Exodus. The generation that saw God's power and glory in unimaginable ways. And he's saying that generation failed to persevere and so didn't ultimately inherit God's promises to them. The the preacher is essentially telling us, learn from the past. Don't make the same mistake as them. Learn from the past. And so we better ask, what do we need to learn Like, what's the mistake they made that we're meant to learn from their example and not make this same mistake? We're told in verse 7 that they harden their hearts in rebellion. What, What does that mean? They heard God's voice, and yet they continually ignored it. It went in one ear and out the other. They received God's promises, And yet they failed to actually believe them and live like they were true. They saw God's goodness and glory over and over and over again. And yet they continually doubted God's goodness. And they desired sinful pleasures above the God who revealed himself to them. They saw that God takes sin seriously. And yet they continued to sin and presume upon his grace. This is what eventually led them to the place of ultimately saying in Numbers 14, we don't want to go into the promised land. We would rather die in the wilderness. And that's exactly what God gave them as a result. We can see in the Exodus generation a process of continually hardening your heart to God's voice, God's promises, and God's warnings eventually leads to a type of complete hardening where we fall away from him. And the preacher shifts in verses 12 and 14 and says, don't make the same mistake today. He says, take care, or more literally, watch out. Watch out. Watch out for a heart that's continually exposed to God's voice, and yet in reality just doesn't care. Yeah, yeah, God says that. Okay, yeah, yeah, next thing, let's go. Watch out for a heart that knows God's promises and the gospel, like can recite it back to someone else and yet deep down doesn't really believe them. Watch out for a heart that would rather indulge in sin than obey God. And so never truly repents of sin and confesses it and turns from it. An evil, unbelieving heart is is a heart that ignores God's voice, refuses to repent of sin, 
and doesn't believe the gospel. And if that type of heart goes unchecked, it ultimately leads us to walk away or fall away from God completely. We, we, we might picture here a, a little child who every time his or her parents talk to him, plugs his ears. And, and every time his parents uh, rebuke him and discipline him, he refuses to turn from whatever they're rebuking and disciplining for. And despite how much they've told him over and over again, we love you, and how they've demonstrated that, and how they've shown they're good, deep down he thinks they don't love me, they're not good, and they just are out to get me. If those type of things persist in a child's heart, eventually that child will walk away from his parents completely. That's the picture we get here of the Israelite generation, and that's what we're warned against here. You might ask, well, how how do we guard against this type of heart? What is the cure for this type of heart? It's it's the gospel. This is why we're told to exhort one another every day, because we're meant to remind each other of all that God said and of his promises and of how good he is and his grace and his mercy, which is ultimately displayed in the gospel where God gives his only son to save us. Like when we hear and believe the gospel, not just once, but day by day, that continually softens our hearts to God. It's why we're also meant to warn each other about the dangers of sin and call each other to repentance and belief in the gospel. So what's the cure for an evil, unbelieving heart? Listen, repent, and believe in the gospel today. Listen, repent, and believe in the gospel today. Do you notice how the preacher keeps repeating over and over again the same word in verses 7 through 19? What's the word? Today. He says in verse 7, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Verse 13, he says, Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today. Verse 15, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In other words, if you're listening to God's voice today, repenting of sin today, and believing the gospel today, praise God for his grace that's enabling you and I to persevere in faith in Jesus. But if you are someone who has never truly responded to God's voice by confessing and repenting of sin and trusting in Jesus alone to save you, then today is an urgent warning or, or if you're someone who's living in sin and refusing to repent of it and fight against it by God's grace, then today is an urgent warning. It's like having some medical symptom that leads you to call your family doctor and you describe the symptom to them. And then after they hear it, they respond and say, you need to get that checked out today. I want you to go to the ER immediately. You need to be seen by someone right away. The doctor's saying, this is urgent. This shouldn't be pushed off till next month, next week, or even tomorrow. It needs to be dealt with today. That's the type of urgency the preacher of Hebrews has when he says, today, today, today. All we have is today, and there's a tendency in us to say, I'll deal with that tomorrow. I'll worry about my faith down the road. I'll figure out what I believe with God and where I'm at with him sometime in the future. Surely there'll be time down the road in the future. 
If you've been pushing off God, even as he pursues you, let me use God's word in Hebrews to urge you, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Like today is the day to trust Jesus and repent, turn to him. Or if you've been walking away from God in some manner and you think, I'll come back to him down the road, let me use the words of Hebrews to urge you, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today is the day to return to him. God tells us, don't fall away because of, e- because of an evil and unbelieving heart. Listen, repent, and believe the gospel today because Jesus is worth it. As, as we get to Hebrews 4, 1 through 11, the preacher is telling us why turning away from Jesus or falling away from Jesus would be such a terrible thing because it would mean that we forfeit our rest. He's telling us, don't, don't forfeit your rest. Don't forfeit your rest that you have in Christ. Just as the first generation of the Israelites forfeited their opportunity to enter into the promised land because they failed to persevere. So also, if we fail to persevere in our faith, we ultimately forfeit the rest God offers to us. Which then should lead to a question about this chapter. What is the rest being referred to in this chapter? What what is the rest we're talking about in this chapter? Is is it a present thing that, that we're offered today that we get to enjoy? Or is it just something in the future that we're promised in Christ? And then also, well, what, what connection does our faith have with this rest that's promised to us? I think in, in relation to the first question, it's not an either or, it's a both end. That, that the rest referred to in this passage is both a present reality we get to enjoy by faith in Christ now, And it's also a future reality that we're promised by Jesus for the future. This is kind of the classic already not yet aspect of our salvation. That we enjoy by faith in Christ a sneak peek right now of all that God's promised us. Even as we wait for the fullness of all that he's promised to us. And so we're warned, don't don't forfeit the rest you have in Jesus right now. In verses 3 through 4, you can look there, we're told that the rest God offers us is something we can enter right now through faith in Jesus. It's compared to God's rest when he rests on the seventh day after creation. And then in verse 10, we're told that we who have entered God's rest have rested from our works. What does that mean? What does that mean, rested from our works? I believe it means resting from the work of trying to prove and justify yourself in this life. It means life is no longer one big performance where we try to prove to ourselves, to other people, or to God that we're good enough because of whatever achievements we can kind of pile up and heap up in this life. It means your value is not wrapped up with how good of a parent you think you are, with how much you succeed, with whatever grade point average you have or whatever diploma you have hanging on your wall, with whatever spot you might have on a team or anything else. Apart from Jesus, we we will attempt to prove ourselves in all sorts of different ways. To measure up, to show that we're good enough, to make something of our lives. And the rest we're offered right now by Jesus is the type of rest that says you don't need to do that. You don't need to do that because Jesus has already done it for you. 
Well, one of my favorite quotes that I go back to over and over again is a quote from a guy named Mark Upton. I heard it from someone else, but, but it's ultimately originally from him. He says, the gospel is rest. The gospel means Jesus carries the burden of your life. The gospel means you will never have to prove yourself again because Jesus has proven you on the cross. Amen. That is so sweet. That is so sweet. And I need to hear that over and over again. This is why faith in Jesus is required to enjoy this rest. Because it's a faith that says, I trust Jesus to carry the burden of my life. I trust him to justify me. And the moment we stop trusting in Jesus is the moment we pick back up that burden, put it on our shoulders, and try to do it ourselves. Which is part of why we need the gospel every single day, over and over and over and over again. And maybe you're someone here this morning, you just need to hear and be reminded of that today. The gospel is rest. Lay down whatever burden you are carrying of trying to prove yourself to other people or God because Jesus has already taken care of it. We're also told don't forfeit the rest Jesus promises you in the future. This is a rest that was only foreshadowed when Joshua led the Israelites into the promised land, we're told in verse 8. It's the rest we will enjoy as we live with Jesus in a new heavens and new earth. This is the future rest that Jesus, our Savior and leader, offers to us. It is a rest where all, every single one of our battles with sin will be ended. It's a rest where all of our suffering and pain and all of our trials will cease. It's a rest where every type of worry and fear is gone. No more what if. That's the type of rest that we're promised in Christ. And the greatest rest we experience in this life is only a small taste of that type of rest. And faith in Jesus is necessary to enter that rest because he's the one who's ultimately secured that rest for us. Imagine for a moment that someone else has reserved and booked for you a vacation to go on with them. It's an all-inclusive vacation where everything has been booked and paid for in full. And yet the vacation isn't until 12 months from now. What do you need to do to make it from here to that vacation? We need to keep believing the person who said they booked the vacation for you and trust that their promises really do come true. Because the moment that you stop believing that person and that you think their promises are a sham and you decide I'm done with them is the moment you ultimately give up whatever they've promised to you. Jesus has already secured a future rest for you and I. It's booked. It's been paid for. All we have to do is keep trusting him and he will lead us safely into that future. And what a shame it would be to forfeit that rest, eternal rest with him, by turning from him and walking away from him. This is why perseverance in the faith is so urgent and necessary, because both the present and future rest that Jesus offers to us 
requires faith in him to be enjoyed. That's why we're told, don't give up, keep going. Jesus and all he promises to us is worth it. That all leads to a specific piece of application this morning that we can see, I think, in these verses we read. Use God's means of grace to help you persevere. Use God's means of grace to help you persevere. God provides us all with things that we need to persevere in our faith. Means of grace is often what we refer to these things as. And this section in Hebrews 3 through 4 refers to two of these means. God's people and God's word. God's people and God's word. Or in other words, the church and the Bible. We see the former referred to in chapter 3, verses 12 through 13, where we're called to exhort one another every day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Okay, so we need each other to persevere. And we see the latter referred to in chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Okay, so we need God's word to persevere as well. If we want to persevere in our faith, we need God's people and we need God's word. We might think of it like this. I've used this illustration before here at Keystone. We might picture a rider in the famous Tour de France. They are riding in a race that requires incredible perseverance. As they ride through t- for 23 days in one of the most challenging races in the world, they cover over 2,000 miles. It's almost coast to coast in the U.S. is what it would be comparable to. They, they climb almost 50,000 meters. It's like going up Mount Everest essentially four and a half times. How in the world do you persevere through that type of race? What helps you get through? Well, you need a team and you need sustenance because no one makes it through the Tour de France on their own. Right? The riders are made up of teams of eight people, and they ultimately have a support staff, likely of at least 20 people who are there supporting them. And, and no rider makes it throughout the Tour de France without the right sustenance. They're taking in 400 to 500 calories an hour when they're on their bikes, not to mention all they eat before and after getting on their bikes. If you try to go alone, you won't make it. If you try to go without the right sustenance, you won't make it. Hebrews is telling us if we want to persevere in our faith, then we need God's people and God's word. First of all, we need God's people. In in a day and age where it's really, really tempting to give up on the church, to give up on gathering with the church, because of all the other options we might have on a Sunday morning, or because of how we can just watch from the comfort of our homes, or because of all the hurt that the church has done at times, and I'm not trying to minimize that at all. We need to be reminded that giving up on the church often puts us in far more danger of giving up on faith in Christ entirely and walking away from him. In fact, often that's the first step, that we walk away from the church and then down the road we ultimately walk away from Christ. Because we need each other to keep each other going. I need you, you need me, we all need each other to encourage each other, to pray for each other, to warn each other, and to speak of Jesus and all that he's done for us. That's why we gather on Sunday mornings. 
That's why we have a men's ministry and a women's ministry. That's why we have small groups. That's why we have kids' ministry, youth ministry, because we need each other in order to keep going in our faith. And Hebrews is telling us if we want to persevere in our faith, then we also need God's word. God's word is able to expose our hearts like nothing else, right? It's able to work at the level of our hearts, bring healing like nothing else. It's described as God's surgical tool, like a surgical tool in verse 12 of chapter four. God uses his word to prevent our hearts from becoming hardened. He reminds us of our sin. He reminds us of his grace and mercy in Jesus. And he reminds us that all his promises really do come true. That's why we preach and teach God's word as we gather, every time we gather. And that's why we encourage each other to read and meditate on God's word throughout the week because we need it in order to keep going. I think these means are so ordinary sometimes that we don't take advantage of them. And yet I think that's the whole point. They're ordinary, so they're really easy to take advantage of. Gather with God's people, read God's word, hear his word preach, because there are all sorts of things in this life that might tempt us to lose heart, give up, and walk away. And God's people and God's word is the means he uses over and over and over and over and over again to say, don't give up, keep going. Jesus really is worth it. Father, we pray that you would be the one who holds us fast. God, in our own strength, we could never put on to our faith. And yet we believe that ultimately you do hold us fast. And that you hold us fast by enabling us to persevere in faith in the gospel enabling us to continue believing that Jesus is better and Jesus is worth it. And so God, we're calling out that you would provide us with all the grace we need to continue believing that. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.